2: Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation
1: and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel
2: experiences for you. Do more with Viator. A big
3: part of what makes the weed special is you, our listeners. That's why we'd like to ask for your help in planning for our future by filling out a short survey. Your responses will help us understand who is listening and what content you are looking for. Go to vox.com slash survey. It takes like five minutes tops. That's vox.com slash survey. Hello, welcome to another episode of Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lind, Vox.com's Dylan Matthews. We are doing another Weeds Time Machine episode. We are going to be going further back in time uh, than we did our first episode. Uh, we talked about No Child Left Behind, which occurred uh, shortly before our journalism careers launched. Now we're going back to a time before any of us were alive, the late 1970s. Paul Volcker was head of the Federal Reserve. He crushed inflation, and this was a – I mean it was an important moment at the time, but also as we're going to discuss, it's important for American politics and society, really the whole global economy. So let's enter together the Weed's Time Machine and voyage back to the 1970s. Ready? <laughs> Okay. So Dylan, here we are. I don't even know when it is exactly. 1978. What is going on? What is this Volcker shock?
2: Why is it important? Like really big overview of the whole deal. Do we even need to get back into the time machine again and like jump a few years back so that we can know how we got here? Or are we just going to start in media's time machine res? Well, here in
4: 1978, I have a pretty good memory for the recent decade. So I'll, I'll walk you through it.
2: Excellent. Thank you, Dylan. The
4: year is 1978. We are about three decades away from our victory in World War II. In the immediate aftermath of that, the U.S. was by far the largest and richest and most successful country in the world. And we had pretty, Pretty rapid economic growth and a pretty good economy with many asterisks for women people of color immigrants uh for white dudes like me and matt uh it was a, a good time economically unemployment was low uh inflation was moderate there were a few recessions but they were generally short-lived and not that serious and then about 13 years ago in 1965 things started changing so inflation had been below 2%. It started to inch up gradually. Lyndon Johnson had this war going on in in Vietnam, and he kept raising federal spending for it. That added to the deficit and, and according to some economists, was adding to pressure on inflation. He was really spooked by the specter of the Great Depression, which he had he had gone through as a young man, or not even that young a man, as a man. <laughs> And so uh, he was very averse to doing anything to stop the upward pressure on prices. Uh, And the economy was pretty good. Unemployment was below 4%. He was happy. Then Richard Nixon becomes president and things start to go to hell. First, the Vietnam War is not over. He's still spending lots of money on that. There is a crisis in 1971 where uh, the old system of exchange rates uh, under which any country in the world could go to the U.S. and get an ounce of gold for $35 broke apart because the U.S. didn't have enough gold anymore. Uh, and and there were more dollars circulating than there was gold to back it up. And so in what was called the Nixon shock, Nixon broke uh, convertibility to gold uh, that had major international repercussions. And then the biggest thing in 1973 is – the uh, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, announced an embargo on oil to the West uh, in uh, revenge, partially for American support for Israel in the Yom Kippur War. So that put sharp upward pressure on oil prices and helped plunge the U.S. and a lot of other countries into a recession around 1974, 1975. Uh, Unemployment made it all the way up to 9%, but also inflation was really high. And we'd never had that combination before of high inflation, high unemployment. And here we are in 1978, we're we're a ways from that crisis point. But inflation is going up again. Things are looking kind of dicey. Gas is still in short supply, it's still really expensive. The new president, Jimmy Carter, does not seem to have any more of a handle on it uh, than Gerald Ford or Richard Nixon did. Um, so that's where we're at. Things are, are looking dicey, and they're about to get a whole lot worse.
3: And what does Volcker do? I, I want to get like a sense of like what's the whole, the whole phenomenon that, that we're going to discuss here.
4: Sure. So next year, 1979, Jimmy Carter is going to do a cabinet reshuffle. Uh, He's going to decide that he wants to take the head of the Federal Reserve, who hasn't been doing a whole lot to control inflation uh, and has sort of been uh, panicking amid all this crisis, uh, to be his Treasury Secretary. That leaves an opening, and he decides to uh, fill it with an old civil servant named Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker is not like a Democratic loyalist or a, a Carter loyalist by any means. At this point, he's running the New York Federal Reserve, which was the uh, most important regional bank for the Fed. Uh, he had been a senior treasury official under Nixon and had been one of the people responsible for breaking convertibility with gold. Um, and so he was well known from that. But he also had a reputation as a guy who was going to take inflation more seriously. And that is exactly what he did, for better and worse in ways we will discuss uh, through the rest of this hour. So what Volker did was first announced that the Fed would be targeting the money supply. And that sounds like a technical change, but it was this big move in stating that what was going on with inflation was that there were too many dollars, too much money circulating, which was the diagnosis that people like Milton Friedman and other sort of so-called monetarists had been articulating for years now. And so Volcker made it the, the Fed's priority to limit growth in the money supply and stated that he would increase interest rates, uh, which is the Fed's main tool for, for affecting the economy, that they set a An interest rate uh, for banks doing business with them, which then affects the interest rates that banks use for credit cards, mortgages, loans to businesses, anything that you see an interest rate on. And so as part of that mission to to keep the money supply from growing too fast, he starts jacking rates up really aggressively. And it takes a couple of tries. Uh, So at first he tries in 1980. This triggers a recession because uh, he's raised rates. And so it's hard to borrow money when businesses can't borrow money as easily that's harder to hire people they spend less the economy goes into a recession but inflation is still around and so he tries it again uh and by this point the first recession has helped jimmy carter lose re-election ronald reagan is the president now volker triggers another recession And this one works for the definition of works that Paul Volcker has at this point. It causes a massive uh, recession. Unemployment surges to over 10 percent. It gets higher than its peak during the Great Recession three decades later. But inflation uh, is never that high again. Uh, It quickly slows to below four, below three, around 2 percent by the end of the, the 1980s. And it stays in that moderate range basically ever since that there are are some recessions, but there's no big inflationary incident in the ensuing three decades. So that's the Volcker shock.
3: And and I think an important thing to understand about that is like that recession was, was really bad. Like there was a lot of high unemployment, a lot of suffering. But like the lesson that central banks took from it and economists and a lot of the conventional wisdom was that like this was really good. Right That having the courage to push unemployment up that high was like an amazing feat of awesome public policy um and you know decades and decades after this, I was in Frankfurt and I was talking to uh Jens Wiedemann, who's the head of the 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 bundesbank the the German central bank, and you know he's talking to journalists and he says. I have a single mandate to keep inflation under control no matter what
2: the cost. You know, and he, he pounded his fist on the table like that. Matt, you've just like beat up the wall of the time machine. I don't know that we're going to be able to get out of the 70s now. <laughs> you know, he's bragging
3: though, right? Like that is the post vulgar understanding of like what the purpose of these institutions is that like no mere politician would ever say I'm going to deliberately get double-digit unemployment to get inflation under control. You need – it takes an independent central banker. And it's completely changed the role, like the concept of a central bank. And And people may remember when Donald Trump started complaining about the Fed, uh, like that was considered very inappropriate, right? And I remember when – Obama was president. You know, I would sometimes ask members of his administration uh, what they thought about different Fred decisions. And they would always, always, always say, we don't comment on monetary policy, right? And and that's not how it was before Volcker. Like, before Volcker, the chairman of the Federal Reserve was an important government job, which, like other important government (laughs) jobs, it was, like, considered that, like, of course— politicians would weigh in on what should be going on but the lesson that was taken away from this was both that like raising interest rates uh, and provoking a recession was good but also that you needed to like have this whole conceptual apparatus to like create the the possibility of this like deliberate infliction of suffering because otherwise like things would naturally spiral out of control and and that goes back to The sort of conventional story of how inflation got so high in the first place, right, which is that the Fed had spent the 70s or maybe, as you were saying, going all the way back to the late 60s, being just like a little too chill about small increases in inflation.
4: Right. And specifically an idea that the Fed was a political actor that was serving the interests of politicians in the U.S. government. And I think the conventional explanation for what happened is that that undermined the credibility of the Fed. And so what you're talking about, about sort of this image of Paul Volcker as this hard ass who's willing to make the tough decisions, in part cultivating that image was the goal. Because when you cultivate that image, you're sending the message to markets that they mean business and are not going to, to back down. So. Not his immediate predecessor, but two predecessors before him was a guy named Arthur Burns, uh, who was was a Fed chair, hugely respected economist, uh, served from 1970 to uh, 77, I believe. And he viewed himself, in addition to being the head of the Fed, as a key policy advisor to Richard Nixon. So he would attend cabinet and economic advisor meetings. He was in constant conversation with Richard Nixon and we know now from from the Nixon tapes and it was widely rumored at the time that Nixon was basically ordering him around. Nixon was saying you can't raise interest rates too high because I need to run for re-election and I can't win re-election if you engineer a recession. He was asking Burns to sort of coordinate with with the policies of his treasury. And I think the diagnosis that Paul Volcker and most economists would say is that really undermined the Fed. It sent a message to the entire world that the Fed wasn't going to do anything politically costly to undermine inflation. And it's important to note here as well that that the dominant theory of inflation in in economics today revolves around expectations. That there is a sense that that inflation can be a self fulfilling prophecy. That if I think that prices uh, for my the input goods for the thing my business produces uh, are going to go up in the future, then I am going to raise my prices now in anticipation of that. And if I think as a worker that the things I spend money on are going to rise in in price in the future, I'm going to demand higher wages. And so you can get these processes happening based on people's expectations for the future that can lead to inflation happening now. And I think the standard economic story of what happened in the 70s was people's expectations for inflation became unanchored, in part because no one expected the Fed to do anything, that the Fed refused to send messages that they wouldn't take away the punch bowl, to use the the metaphor that a lot of central bankers use, that they wouldn't uh, stop the party when it got out of hand. And once people are convinced that they won't stop the party when it gets out of hand, then people start to really worry about it getting out of hand, which in turn leads to ongoing inflation and these sort of cascading effects.
2: I mean, how much of this is all you touched on this earlier, Dylan, but I, you know, in in terms of LBJ's biography but like I think it's you know it 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 seems kind of generationally true for a lot of these other dudes as well like how much of this is just fighting the last war over concerns about the great depression and the understanding that like when mass unemployment is within living memory for most of the electorate that like a rise in unemployment really is the problem that needs to be avoided rather than any other kind of shock to the economy
4: I think that's exactly right, that everyone in this generation of economists, with the possible exception of Milton Friedman, <laughs> is sort of captivated by the Great Depression as as this ultimate failure. And even Milton Friedman, he he was obsessed with the Great Depression. And that was viewed as the great economic calamity of everyone's lifetime. And a lot of people placed blame on uh, the Fed and on the Congress for not being stimulative enough, for for not taking aggressive enough actions, certainly until FDR and maybe even during FDR. And so I, I think you're exactly right that that leads to a posture that the Fed should be supporting Congress when it wants to spend a lot of money uh, to keep unemployment low. There was also a belief in a concept called the Phillips curve, uh, which is still important in economics, but it doesn't have sort of the revered place that it had before the great uh, inflation, which holds that there is a a pretty strict trade off between unemployment and inflation, that if you cut unemployment too low, you might get into a situation where you, you have a fixed amount of people working. And. The dollars to chase them keep increasing, and so wages keep getting bid up, uh, and you get inflation. And I think the takeaway from the Phillips Curve concept in the 60s for LBJ, JFK's advisors, and to some degree for Nixon's advisors, was we kind of have to accept some inflation because the alternative is we jack up unemployment, and that's unacceptable. And so part of, I think, the historical memory of Volcker as this, this admirable hard-ass is in contrast to those kinds of of, of people, people like Arthur Oaken or uh, Alvin Hansen, that this earlier generation of economists were so terrified of raising unemployment that they wouldn't do anything to keep inflation under control. And it took uh, someone like Volcker to be less romantic about that.
2: Like It, it seems that disproving that empirical theory that like As long as you were managing employment and inflation kind of both in tandem, you wouldn't have both rising at the same time. Breaking that empirically seems like it also created a problem for the politics, right? Where, you know, my kind of non economist normie brain has a lot of trouble seeing inflation as a genuine problem for like pocketbook economics in the same way that unemployment is. But when you have both of those things rising at once, then you have all of a sudden a really acute pain for a lot of people, which seems like it turns inflation into the issue that if you really believed in the Phillips curve, you would never see as a big political problem. Well,
3: and that's also where I I think from the vantage point of Volcker in, in the late 70s, right, you look at the original rise in inflation in the late 60s, when inflation, having been very low, came to be higher, but it wasn't per se high. And the thinking of the Johnson administration economists in particular was like, look, this is way better than the alternative. Um, And I think it was similar to, you know, what you will hear from the Biden administration today, right? Which is like, in an ideal world, perhaps we wish prices were not going up as much as they are in 1967. But like, Unemployment is low. We did this whole civil rights act thing. We have the war on poverty going on. Like we are trying to incorporate like all these like baby boom kids into the economy. We're trying to create opportunities for African Americans who've never had them before. Uh, we're trying to stop communism, right? And so it's like 4% annual price increases is like a small price to pay for all of this. And what Volcker comes to think by, and others by the late seventies is that this was wrong, that that was too optimistic to think that you could go from two to three to four to five and then just stop was mistaken. That once you lost credibility, that once people decided in particular that it's like, look, it's totally true. It's 1966 and you're thinking about slowing the economy down and you're like, nah. Like, this is not the time for it. But 1967 isn't the time for it. 68 isn't the time for it. 69 isn't the time for it. By 71, you're like, maybe money doesn't have to be backed by gold, right? And it's like, it never it never stops, right? By the time Volcker does this, inflation is so high and unemployment is also high. And everybody is like, this is really bad. We need to do something. But the post-Volcker consensus becomes, well, we really should have stopped this like 10 years earlier, right? That instead of blaming Volcker for having let unemployment get so high, that Volcker is the hero and the villain is the Johnson administration economists who didn't nip this in the bud, right? And so now going forward, we have to say all the time, the Phillips curve, you know, Dylan mentions this relationship, right? And people start thinking, okay, The Phillips curve is a statistical regularity, but when policymakers decide that they can exploit this, that they can just say, oh, we're going to move to a different point on the curve, that things go out of control because uh, actors in the economy have rational expectations and they see that you're trying to bring up the price level, so they raise prices, right, and and things kind of spiral, you know, I think normal people probably never really – Bought into this like elaborate economic theory. Um, If you really want to make economists angry, you can say to them that the reason inflation was so bad in the 70s is that there were these oil embargoes and that made the (laughs) price of oil really high and that people uh, buy gasoline a lot and also that goods are shipped in trucks and so that having a shortage in oil is really, really bad for the economy. And then you can say that something that happened in the 80s is that there weren't any more oil embargoes and also there was a lot of domestic oil drilling in the United States. And like they will get so – like the the, the rage – uh, that will that will wash over them. This is like considered like the like the worst idea, because really it's a very important monetary policy story. And I say it not just to mock uh, Christina Romer, who I love, is a great economist, great economic historian. Um, she has this paper that's like mostly about times when the Fed let unemployment get too high. But she also cites the '70s period. She says that like the biggest mistake in central banking is to think that the central bank can't control the economy, and that this is what they got into pre volcker that under Burns and, uh, who was it, Miller, they were making all these excuses for themselves, and they're being like, oh, like, blame the Arabs, or blame the war, or like, Nixon is crazy, but that like, at the central bank, like, it is always you, 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 and that as soon as they had a Fed chair who was like, fuck this, I'm going to make inflation lower, it got lower, right? And so she says the same thing about the Depression and, and various other times going in in the other direction. But still, I mean, I was not alive in the 70s. But I but I know people who were, you know, and if you just like ask them, like, what was going on? they be like, well, you couldn't get any gasoline. And it's why public anxiety about inflation today, I think peaked months ago, when the pipeline was broken, and you couldn't get gasoline because like to normal people that's what the inflation of the 70s was it was gasoline shortages but if you want to understand like american economic policy it's that like that is like that's not what volcker thought and and everybody who's anybody for the past 40 years has decided that he was correct and that this was a monetary policy issue
4: right and i mean i i think to dara's point about not viewing inflation as a pocketbook issue For the benefit of millennials, elder and and younger like us and Gen Zers and other people, it was a real pocketbook issue, like not just the gasoline shortage, which was real. And people would wait hours uh, in line to get rationed gasoline, if not pay tons and tons of money for uh, to fill up at a a higher priced outlet because interest rates were rising. You had 15, 16, 17 percent interest rates on mortgages. And I don't own a home now I have in the past like I had like a two point seven five percent interest rate on a mortgage. It was like trivial, but imagine your loan balance doubling every few years. Uh, because you have such a huge interest rate. It made sort of owning a home, which is very important in how Americans think of themselves as a society, very, very difficult. You typically were seeing your wages in real terms fall year after year as opposed to increase. People are very used to to having their incomes rise regularly over the course of their career. But if goods are are rising in price too fast, that won't happen. And that was sort of the situation in the 70s. And I think one point that Brad DeLong, who's, who's done some historical work on this period, has made is that you sort of had to go through that experience and have the public get that outrage about inflation per se for what Volcker did to be possible. He has some line in, in his, his chapter on this where he says, you know, if Arthur Burns had tried to do this in 1972, 1973, like he would have been shot out of a cannon. Like there, there was no demand for it. No one thought this was a big enough problem to justify the things that Paul Volcker did. But by 1979, 1980, people did think it was a big enough problem. People were, were living with very real material costs of inflation and, and came to view it as the biggest problem in the country, if you look at sort of polls of what people's priorities were. So that's, that's a sort of hard thing for people of our generation to wrap our heads around. But it was real. It was like the biggest economic problem in people's lives at that period.
2: And this, I think, and we should take a break after this, but it brings us back to what we were talking about, about the kind of image of the uh, politically independent hard-ass, right? The combination of economists looking back on this and saying, well, what really should have happened was for things to change starting in the 60s and the political reality that no one would have realized in the 60s that it would have been a political liability. And therefore, anyone who understood themselves as a political actor made a perfectly rational decision to like not touch inflation for the ensuing decade led to the assumption that in order to keep things under control, you needed someone who was politically insulated enough to make decisions that no political actor would like. So,
3: you know, this has been kind of in the background here, Dylan, but like, looking at the period in the early 80s, the first couple of years when unemployment soars almost to 11%, like, why does that bring inflation down? Like, how does that? work like what what is the story of success here
4: so there are sort of two stories there's a mechanistic story and there's a story about expectations so in a very mechanical way the point of interest rate we've always known that lowering interest rates can can boost economic growth uh, in the short term and that increasing them can slow it and the mechanistic reason for that is uh that the fed is basically in charge of how much it costs to borrow And when you increase the amount that you have to pay to borrow money to invest in something for your business, to hire new workers, et cetera, people do less of that. It's more expensive. And so they do less hiring, they buy less stuff with with borrowed money. And a lot of business happens on borrowed money. And so this becomes very, very sort of significant in the economy. And in recessions are also usually deflationary periods. In the common slogan, inflation is a a phenomenon of too much money chasing too few goods. And recessions, like the amount of money in circulation just goes down. And it goes down in particular because Paul Volcker is specifically targeting the amount of money out there. He tries to control the rate of growth and and make sure it grows more slowly. The bigger story and and the one we've been sort of building up to is is one about expectations, that it's less any specific increase in rates that Paul Volcker made. It's more that he just started constantly communicating to the public that he was going to raise rates repeatedly. Ah, uh, with this specific goal in mind, which uh, let markets sort of anticipate how he was going to act because he was was telling them specifically, sort of these are the estimates of the money supply I'm looking at. I'm going to keep raising rates until we we uh, get growth in these monetary aggregates to a level that I'm comfortable with, and that that restored the Fed's credibility. And when he showed that he could get the Fed to do that regularly when when he wanted to 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 keep it on track for his goals, that sent a signal to the markets that that they weren't messing around and that if uh, things got out of hand in the future, even after the initial sort of inflation of the 1980s was done, uh, if it was like 1985 or 1986 and inflation was was peaking up again, that no one doubted that Paul Volcker would be able to deal with it. It was like doubting that like Dick Cheney would invade Iran if he got the opportunity. Like this is what Paul Volcker does.
3: And I think. Part of the significance of this for economic policy is that this corresponds with Ronald Reagan being in his first term. Right. There's a, a conjunction of this kind of dorky monetary policy story with, I think, a well-known bit of American political history, which is that Ronald Reagan was an actor. He was governor of California. He runs against Gerald Ford in 1976. Like challenging an incumbent president is weird. Um, you know, he is he's the leader of the right wing in America. He is an anti-established, I mean, anti-establishment to the point of primarying an incumbent Republican president. He wins the GOP nomination in 1980 this is considered a real ideological break from the past. We have just seen George McGovern, 72, and uh, Barry Goldwater, 64, that extremist politicians lose presidential elections in landslides, you know, of the kind that, that like we don't see nowadays, right? Like big public opinion swings against these kind of Reagan-type politicians. But then the economy is really bad in 1980. And so Reagan wins, and he wins with not that much of the vote, actually. Um, But people hate Jimmy Carter. There's a big third party vote. Uh, Reagan takes over. Unemployment spikes to 10.8%. And Democrats clobber Republicans in the 82 midterms, uh, because like everything sucks, right? Um, And so there could be this Big backlash against the then ascendant American right. Uh, But then we get 4.6% real GDP growth in 1983 and 7.2% in 84. So the economy gets really bad under Volcker, but then it comes roaring back. Like, so it's not like the Great Recession where unemployment got high and then it like inched down for a decade. It like we zoom back. And so politically, this vindicates everything that Reagan does, right? Even though the causal relationships between all of these things is very murky, he gets a ton of votes in 84. He wins, I think, 49 states. Democrats are despondent. Um, And it turns out that like the new conservative movement dominated Republican Party can win, right? And so this is like an FDR-esque realigning moment in American politics. And it would not have happened if not for the bad economy in 1980 and the very strong economy in 84, which all the like smart economics people think was largely about monetary policy rather than anything else. But it like it permanently shifts everything in the sort of American political regime. Um, And to Volcker's credit, though, right? It's like, I don't think he ever would have become a hero to economic policymakers, if not for the rapid recovery, right? That if this had been a kind of 2009 style situation, where unemployment was super high throughout like, all the 80s and Reagan was a huge political failure and stuff like that. People were like, Ugh, like, this doesn't work. Uh, but it was the apparent belief that you could not only inflict the pain and beat inflation, but then, like, flip the switch back on that I think made this seem like like a good idea, right? It's part of why it was credible. Like, Dylan was talking about expectations and credibility, but it's like it, it was credible because it ended with the incumbent president being reelected in the landslide. And it made it seem like all this Nixon era stuff where you're like, no, you can't do that was like sort of misguided that like, actually, you could do that because you could just flip it back the other way at the end.
4: Yeah. To prepare for today, I read Paul Volcker's memoir, which I don't recommend. But the pivotal trauma of of the book that he comes to again and again and again is that at some point in 1984, he gets called into uh, it's not the Oval Office, it's the library in the White House for a meeting with ronald reagan and james baker who at this point is is chief of staff and james baker uh, looks him in the eye because volker says ronald reagan couldn't look him in the eye and do this and james baker looks him in the eye and says you are ordered not to raise rates in 1984 um you are not allowed to raise rates until we win re-election and as we were discussing before volker views this as like the worst thing that has ever happened to him that th- this is a, a cataclysmic violation of federal reserve independence but he also says, I wasn't planning on raising rates anyway, so I just didn't. And I didn't tell anyone about this. And so this sort of speaks to Matt's point about there being some serendipity here, that maybe if he had separately decided that he wanted to raise rates, or maybe if if James Baker hadn't decided to bully him like that, the political history of the decade would would look different. But the timing worked out exceedingly well. There were some other sort of aspects to the Volcker shock that I just want to like put a a line under this. Like the rightward turn in American life and politics over the last 30 years, like owes as much to Paul Volcker as anyone, like certainly as much as it does to Ronald Reagan. It wasn't just him. He was in many ways a symptom of a broader push and that Jimmy Carter was was in some ways sort of pro deregulation and, and more right leaning than than LBJ, the previous Democratic president. The Volcker basically affects Ronald Reagan winning election. There's a lot of recent historical work suggesting that that the Volcker shock uh, helped lead to the financialization of of the economy overall. Once interest rates are really high and it becomes clear that you can make a lot of money in good investments as opposed to in productive investments and in factories and stuff, more and more of the economy starts to pour into that as opposed to alternatives. He helps cause a crisis in Latin America where a lot of debts for governments are dominated in dollars. And so suddenly the interest rates on those debts skyrocket because of Volcker's actions. But the whole memoir is told in a sort of woe is me tone of like, I'm the guy who has to clean up other people's messes. Um, and so it's like, ah, oh, those those Mexicans wouldn't like, stop borrowing money. Uh, I had to get down there and, and help them, like, figure out a bailout package. And and the result was that Mexico and a lot of Latin American countries get these bailouts from the IMF, including strict rules about not spending too much on social programs. And so poverty rises, there's some negative health impacts. These are all sort of things that I think in the academy, uh, the term neoliberalism gets used for a lot. Um, but even if if you don't like that term or, or want to refer to it, like, there has been a right word shift in, in American politics and life. And I think like if you want to understand why Paul Volcker is important, it's because he's like one of the authors of that shift.
2: And this, even though, I mean, I'm I'm still having some trouble wrapping my head around the fact that the president who reaps the political benefit of this, like steel Fed is the president who like, actually attempted to order the Fed not to raise rates over the course of a year for political reasons, especially when you combine that with the kind of the free marketeer assumption that has become an article of faith you know, among like people who generally think that American capitalism is like fundamentally good, that, you know, you can't have the government trying to tell the market what to do, that this is going to inevitably lead to the kind of like expectation management issues that we saw, you know, in the decade leading into the Volcker shock. So can we talk a little bit about the kind of like the political institution of the Fed and all this and like how is is this just a change of its role in perception in you know a bunch of economists deciding that a strong independent Fed is the way to go and therefore that they must protect that independence or are there actual like institutional changes in what the Fed can do?
4: So Matt can speak more to sort of possible institutional changes. The big change to the Fed in this period sort of legally was uh, in 1978, they passed the the Humphrey Hawkins Act, which was originally going to be much more expansive. But in the form that it took, it mandated that the Fed pursue full employment and price stability. And so many central banks around the world are just tasked with reducing inflation and ensuring price stability the Fed has a dual mandate. And so if anything, Congress was pushing it to be more attentive to the needs of workers and, and less willing to raise unemployment at the time that the Volcker took over. I don't think there were, were substantial changes in their, their powers over that period. Um, there were some, some crises that kind of tested its its uh, explicit powers. Uh, shortly after uh, Volcker left office, there was the, the savings and loan crisis because his interest rate hikes meant that these mortgage companies that had all these these mortgages from earlier periods where where interest rates were really low ran into a financial dilemma and started to fail en masse. And, and the Fed that did things to rescue them that were, I think, unprecedented at that time and then were small potatoes compared to what happened uh two decades later. But yeah, it was much more about attitude and the culture of the institution and how you should view it as separate from the White House, um, that, that he was not trying to be Arthur Burns in the White House, giving the president advice on tax cuts or wage and price controls and, and the like. He was trying to be the leader of an independent institution.
3: And, you know, I mean, I, I think it's actually important that like there there wasn't a formal institutional change here. And as Dylan said, if anything, the congressional action pointed in the opposite Direction. But, like, an important thing that happened here I mean, this is the the interplay between Volcker and the rightward turn in American politics is that, you know, the Fed, Volcker, and like minded economists essentially outmaneuver labor unions throughout the 1970s and 1980s eighties, right? That, you know, after Jimmy Carter wins in 76, Democrats have big congressional majorities. There's a push to sort of um, revise Taft-Hartley in important ways. That passes the House with a large majority, uh, but is defeated in the Senate in part thanks to a lack of enthusiasm from the White House. Uh, there's this push for Humphrey Hawkins and a strong full employment mandate. It gets watered down, but it passes anyway. And then part of what Volker does his Fed chair is just ignore this, right? Like he does not act as if Congress has just pushed him to be more supportive of full employment. He does exactly the opposite. Um, But then when Reagan is president, like Reagan is instituting structural economic reforms, right? Tax cuts, reduces in welfare spending, um, a more hostile posture toward private sector labor unions and public sector ones. And You know, this is not an official part of the monetary policy mix, but just as in the 60s, I think Fed officials approved of civil rights and the war on poverty and they wanted to make it successful, they liked the supply side agenda and they wanted to make it successful. It was like awkward that Reagan was saying in 84, don't raise interest rates, because that went against the, like, story they were trying to put out. But, like, they didn't raise interest rates. You know what I mean? Like, they generated the boom that would vindicate these policies. And that's something that you see now recurring through history, right? When Bill Clinton takes over in 1993, there is a kind of threat-slash-deal from Alan Greenspan, which is if you do a big fiscal austerity package – I will keep interest rates low. But if you do a sort of Biden-esque build back better, I'm going to say, oh, the deficit's getting too high. This is dangerous and inflationary. And that really changes the course of political events in 1993 and 94. and consolidates the like, super neoliberal 90s globalization era, um, the European Central Bank during the Great Recession, you know, it keeps saying to European governments, like, you guys have all these policies in place that like that we think are bad. Right, like Europe has very interventionist labor market regulation, has just lots of policies that most economists think are bad policies, and the e c b keeps saying to them, like "You need to change this stuff, you need to do structural reform, and they keep saying that low interest rates would be like bailing out these irresponsible governments right and so it g- it goes from the initial idea, which is like the central bank can't be overly indulgent of inflation, to the idea that the central bank is really like the babysitter for all of economic policy, right? And that like you are there in some sense to punish bad populism and to reward like sound center-right technocratic policies. And that's a big thing that we started to move away from, like I really think under Trump actually, um, because – Trump does so much bad populism, including old-fashioned yelling at the Fed, appointing a guy who doesn't have a PhD in economics to be chair. Um, right. But it became this kind of uh Applebaum, who who I did a Weeds interview with, you know, he has this book about like the rise of economists as a as a class. And the Fed is like the means through which they come in the 80s and 90s to have this sort of dominant role across the board of economic policy, right? That like formally speaking, like the air traffic controllers strike has nothing to do with monetary policy, but I think it's understood in the 80s that like Reagan's Anti labor policies are like working hand in glove to both crush inflation and then allow for this rapid
4: rebound. Right. And Volcker will say that explicitly. I was sort of surprised at how effusive he is about breaking the air traffic controller strike, that he thought that was like Reagan's finest moment and and did an incalculable amount to help him and keeping wages from rising too much because after that, all the unions were cowed and they didn't want to demand too much in the way of, of wages yeah there's there's a sort of analogy here between the Fed's role in economics and the Supreme Court's role in the law that they they both sort of exist as these government institutions but also as as the pinnacle of certain professions that elite schools, whether it's the Harvard or MIT economics departments or the Harvard or Yale Law, send their best to these places uh, first as junior economists or clerks, and then eventually as as the people on them. And they exist both as uh, representatives of the people who, who put their members on them, the Democratic Fed nominees act differently from from Republican Fed nominees, Democratic justices act differently from Republican justices, but with a, a shared kind of economist brain or lawyer brain uh, and sort of set of professional norms and practices that these institutions work to to inculcate separately from, from the mainstream political process. And I think the, the other point of analogy is there's a lot of writing in constitutional law about how you, you reconcile the patently sort of anti-democratic features of the Supreme court with American sort of democratic tradition. And there's less hand-wringing about that with, with the fed among economists in part, because I think economists are terrified of what a a really democratically controlled fed would do. But there's a similar kind of question there that part of what Volcker did was, pursue policies directly opposed to the interests and often stated preferences of the man who appointed him, and did so without much in the way of of public accountability outside of a few congressional testimonies. And there are benefits to that. Like, I think central bank independence, probably overrated by economists, but has benefits and and can allow uh, countries to get out from genuine crises that political leaders have have generated, but it, it should make us uneasy a little bit.
2: Should we take a break and talk about whether all of this was really necessary?
4: Absolutely.
3: So Dylan, was it all necessary?
4: I went into this thinking it was and I came out of it not convinced remotely. <laughs> so there are two uh, arguments for for why it's that I've seen uh, in a lot of places for why it wasn't necessary. One that I, I didn't really find persuasive and one that I did. So the first is, is sort of the argument for incomes policy. Um, so this was an alternative that was sketched in the 70s by uh, a lot of like very eminent economists, people like Ken Arrow, Paul Samuelson, uh, James Tobin. Um, There's a good review of Volcker's memoir in in N-Plus-One by Tim Barker that that lays out a lot of this history. But they were basically saying the government had to intervene directly in the wage and price-setting process to keep inflation under control while not affecting a a large-scale increase in unemployment across the board. That might have worked. I I don't know enough about it, but I'm very skeptical, in part because uh, Nixon – implemented wage and price controls in the 70s, uh, 71 to 73, I believe. Uh, It didn't do a whole lot. It's hard to do wage and price controls for things like gasoline, where there's just like a real supply shortage. Like, uh, You could say that gas is not going to be more than a dollar a gallon, but the result would be just rationing of gas. But the other story, which... I thought was relatively novel and I've I've since read a bunch of older papers about and and Matt tells me his uncle was talking about as as a theory behind the great inflation back in the 80s or whatever. It centers around regulation Q. Um so regulation Q is a cool sounding, fairly obscure these days, uh rule that was initially passed as part of the, the Glass-Steagall Act in the 1930s, which was meant to separate commercial and, and investment banks and became famous and and recent decades after the financial crisis. But one one element of that act uh, was a cap on interest rates that uh, people with checking or savings accounts could earn. The idea was that competition between banks to give out as much interest as possible in the 1920s had led them to try to finance those high interest rates they were giving savers by doing riskier and riskier sort of speculative activity. And so the idea was that by, by capping interest rates, they wouldn't compete with each other that much. They wouldn't have as much motivation to do risky speculation of the kind that helped lead to the, the stock market panic in 1929. All well and good. In 1965, a weird thing starts happening. The Federal Reserve's uh, interest rate that they charge exceeds the 4% cap on, on deposits, So from there on out and then dramatically uh, over the course of the 70s, as the federal reserve rate exceeds the cap by more and more and more, anyone who's keeping their their money in a checking account or a savings account is basically a chump. They're making below market rates uh, for, for what they're saving. The result is, obviously, people pull their money out. Uh, they're they're losing money in in opportunity cost terms compared to to what the market should be paying them. They pull money out, they spend more, which which contributes to inflation. and at the same time, because they're pouring money out, uh, banks can't make as many loans because they're limited uh, in their ability to make loans based on on how many deposits they have around. and so there's a credit crunch. businesses can't get access to loans as much, which leads to recession. And so that causes both the inflation that you see in the, the 70s uh, and the recessions of 1974, 75, and contributes uh, to the the ones that Volcker directly caused. Um, so this is a story I find very persuasive, and it seems to explain the timing slightly better. Uh, I should say here that Regulation Q was basically repealed in the late 70s. By the introduction of things like money market funds, which offered market rate returns and functioned very similarly to savings and checking accounts. And so people could just put their money in those and wouldn't have the disadvantage. And as soon as that happens, you start to see inflation going down. And so this is an argument in a paper that some uh, Wharton and NYU researchers came out with recently. We'll link it in the show notes. I think it's it's really sort of important and uh, shaped my thinking of of what happened.
2: Dylan, you snuck a white paper into the time machine.
4: I absolutely did. But I think what's important about it is that it implies that even if Volcker hadn't acted decisively, you might have seen a waning of the inflation anyway. That by repealing Regulation Q sort of through this side method of of money market funds, these inflationary dynamics might have gone away, even absent some Volcker-inflicted recessions. and if that 's true that's that 's a real tragedy
3: so I, I do think though right that when we talk about these kind of like two anti Volker narratives and we talk about volcker 's significance as a kind of apostle of neoliberalism. That we need to keep in mind the fact that these counter narratives have different implications, right? Because because the incomes policy people, they were old new dealers, right? And what they were basically saying was, look, during World War II, the Office of Price Administration kept this all in check right? Um, We did not have an inflation problem then, despite massive government borrowing, unemployment that was in effect below zero. Like that's what all the like, we can do it, like housewives into factories stuff was, and uh, very low interest rates, right? So the idea of incomes policy was you could go back to wartime style solution, but you would have to go as far as they did during the war, right? You couldn't just put price controls on gasoline, you would have to Ration gasoline. Um, you would need to ration probably um, house construction and try to redirect capital toward like oil industry investment, right? Like a very ambitious, centrally planned economy. Nixon couldn't like make it work, right? And it's difficult to kind of make it work. Go. Oh, the Regulation Q points toward another idea, which is that the real solution just was neoliberalism, right? That like the inflation was caused by this excessive regulation in the banking sector. And you could point to other things that played into it too, right? That like when private sector unions were more predominant, a lot of workers had automatic cost of living increases in their contract. So when the Arabs shut down the oil supply and the price of gasoline goes up, some people's wages would just like, automatically rise to keep pace with that. And so the the distortions would propagate throughout the economy. And then Regulation Q is a particularly prominent example. It's both obscure and prominent, uh, but because- Particularly notable. Right. it, It impacts the financial plumbing, right? And so you would say, okay, maybe we could have averted this if we had been deregulating more aggressively all throughout the 70s. Right. And that, I think, is very analytically plausible if you if you look at the historical track record. But it doesn't it doesn't really like do the work that I think like Volcker's critics wanted to do. I I every once in a while read in the in the popular press, I think Jacobin was the most recent one that does it like somebody will do one of these Volcker revisionist takes. And what they always want it to be is that the incomes policy idea would have worked uh, because that leads to a conclusion that has, like, useful left-wing political implications. Whereas I don't really think that, like, banking deregulation was the true hero of Donald Walker. Like, th- that doesn't, like, establish the kind of claims that you would want to do to, like, overthrow Reaganism. Um, and in fact, if anything, it's the opposite, right? That, like, part of the the point of, like, Provoke or cheerleading is actually to say that like Ronald Reagan and the supply side revolution were like kind of fake and that this was actually just monetary policy that he randomly got the credit for. Reagan does not personally get credit for Regulation Q, but it is a, a Reagan esque idea that like we need to move out of the post New Deal hyper regulated economy into a more free market one. And those seem justified by like both of these kinds of theories.
2: I do think that all of that is correct for an understanding of neoliberalism that focuses on the deregulatory aspects, which is why it's particularly like it's always wild to think about the 70s when you have wage and price controls under Republican President Richard Nixon, followed by like massive deregulation in certain industries by Democratic President Jimmy Carter. But it's also true, as we were saying in the last segment, that partly because of the like political preferences of economists and central bankers, neoliberalism has become this more robust moral economy of like who ought to be the winners and losers in an economy. And this idea of central banks being unable to act too aggressively to lower unemployment because Runaway inflation will end up being more painful than just accepting a certain level of unemployment is, is itself kind of a moralized thing that in addition to just the basic capitalist Acceptance of like creative destruction. Some people will lose their jobs. That's just how, you know, the market works. There is this acceptance that it would be bad to pay too much attention to the unemployment rate, which is, I think, what you see a lot of reaction against in the 2010s when there's, you know, this very slow comeback from the Great Recession and a lot of people kind of asking why the Fed, which theoretically has this dual mandate, isn't more concerned with the clearly not self-correcting unemployment level in, say, 2011, 2012.
4: Right. And so I think that's exactly right, that the ideological implications of these arguments is are, are very different. I can't leak it since I don't think it's publicly available yet, but I, I read a working paper by Tim Barker and, and Jacob Fagan, arguing that the the inflation in the U.S. and also a similar stagflation in the Soviet Union were both caused by defense overproduction in the 50s and 60s, which has fascinating ideological implications. (laughs) Um, But I think... For right now, for the political economy of, of 2021, both the regulation Q story and the incomes policy story do similar work. So, like, you you often hear people like like Larry Summers, Olivier Blanchard, other eminent macroeconomists uh, raising a concern that the U.S. Uh, is getting uh, too profligate with uh, federal spending – The Fed is too accommodative of this. Uh, one piece of evidence for this is that the idea that unemployment can go too low was sort of institutionalized in this idea of the Nehru or the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, and that Jerome Powell has been going under everyone's estimate of the Nehru for years and years with no negative consequences of any kind. So all these economists are worried at that combination of a loose Fed and, and a free spending Biden. If the regulation Q story is right, even though it's sort of a deregulation story, we don't have regulation Q anymore. And like no one's proposing that we bring it back. And so I think one takeaway that the authors of that paper make is we really shouldn't expect a rerun of the precise dynamics of the 1970s because we don't have this this dumb regulation that caused a bunch of problems back then. We have a really robust sort of savings network out there interest rates are still low and so i don't think there's any risk of anyone being mad about getting 4% interest on a savings account um these days i mean here's here's one one way to think about
3: it right because you you look at the you know the, the inflation that that's happening this year is you know i have a car um uh, my car's kind of old it's pretty shitty i was kind of thinking about replacing it uh, but then I've been looking at what's going on with car prices, and they're up a lot. And so my reaction, which I think is a very normal one, is like, I'm actually not going to go buy a car for no reason uh, right now, even though I might enjoy it in some sense. Like, this just seems like a, a bad time to make a purchase like that. And that is the kind of response that, like, should block inflationary spirals, Right. It's like cars get expensive, so people don't buy them. So eventually they get cheaper again versus The inflationary cycle is like, holy shit, I better buy a car now because they're only going to be more expensive in a year. And, you know, so one question is like, well, why why are we not seeing that like purchase frenzy right now? And so one theory, the mainstream theory is actually like a little bit weirdly psychological. It's that like Jay Powell has all this credibility and I am not rushing out to preemptively buy cars because I feel... (laughs) Credibly that the Fed will not hesitate to enforce its average inflation targeting regime, even though as a journalist who has written about the average inflation targeting regime, I am aware that like consumers of policy journalism frequently don't know what this is. The other theory, the more regulation QE theory is like, look, I have some money that I could have spent on a car, but like the money's fine where it is. So like, there's no panic. Whereas if inflation was like literally draining my bank account, then I'd be like, well, I better buy something, right? That explanation doesn't require any um, semi-mystical belief that typical consumers are like deeply attuned to theoretical issues in in macroeconomic policy. It just requires them to be somewhat aware of what interest rate they personally um, gain on their own savings, which even that seems like a little bit of a stretch to me, but it's at least plausible. Like you could go look it up pretty easily.
2: It is unsurprising to me that if you scratch the surface of economist conventional wisdom, you get something that is just as much motivated by folk theories as anything the economists say they're trying to reject. But are we seeing any kind of reassessment of this in light of the fact that, like, as you guys have just laid it out, the empirics of right now strongly suggest that maybe the regulation Q theory was right all along. And, you know, is anyone updating their priors or is everyone just kind of drawing the battle lines as they would have been drawn 50 years ago and not, or as they feel they should have been drawn 50 years
4: ago? We're pretty early in whatever this is, if this is an inflationary moment. And I don't know that it is. I find the arguments that uh, a lot of this is like temporary fluctuations. And as, as Matt was saying, sort of the the car market or the responses to a pipeline being shut Compelling, but it took about 15 years from the start of of inflation picking up to Paul Volcker sort of winning the argument and and doing what he did. We're maybe like a few months into the recovery in earnest post vaccination. I don't think that enough has happened to change a lot of people's minds, but I think it's interesting that these ideas are kind of coming back that you have people like Bacon and Barker, uh, and this NYU team trying to, to think about Great inflation again. We kind of just went through this process in 2008-2009 of realizing we were rerunning the Great Depression. And I think if we get inflation in the near future, it will in some ways be a, a similar kind of redo of the 70s. And I think as awful as the early 2010s were, we learned a lot from the Great Depression. It was a lot better than the Great Depression. And I think it was better in part because we had a Fed chair who'd spent his life as a historian of the Great Depression and did some pretty dramatic actions to, to keep it in check. And my hope is that we can sort of similarly improve on our handling of uh, inflation from uh, the last go-around, but, but it remains to be seen. I feel
3: like policymakers have parked in a slightly weird middle ground, right, where they are acting like... They believe we need some revision to the post-Volker conventional wisdom, right? Like policymakers are acting much more relaxed about inflation than that corpus of doctrines would suggest you should be, or than it caused them to, to behave in the recent past, right? Um, I, I mean, as recently as 2015, uh, Janet Yellen was trying to preempt inflation, Right. She was saying that even though it wasn't the case that inflation was over the 2% target, that she thought it might become over the 2% target soon based on labor market fundamentals. So it was time to start easing off on monetary stimulus. Now we are definitely not doing that. Right. Like the inflation is over 2 percent and they are saying it's fine. Right. Like there's a there's a bigger picture, blah, blah, blah. But the reasons that they are giving for saying it's fine are not like revision of the fundamental doctrine. Instead, they're saying, well, it's specific to the pandemic, it's this, that and the other thing. And I mean, I think pragmatically, like, that's the right way to sort of go, right? You kind of just like ease people into a new regime of thinking about stuff. But I do wonder about it. Like, I don't, I don't think it makes that much sense, honestly, because if you really do believe that everything is dominated completely by uh, hazy mass psychology, then That has, I think, like sort of weird implications for what you need to be doing. And they're not really doing that. It doesn't appear to me that the Fed or policymakers in the White House or so on and so forth are acting like manipulation of forward-looking public expectations is the key variable. They appear to be acting like real supply-side issues are the predominant factor. But I also don't know how much action they're taking on those steps. I mean, I I keep seeing this stuff where people are like, well, like, look how much of this is used cars, and like, a a lot of it is used cars. But it does kind of make me wonder about the old incomes policy analysis, almost. It's like, shouldn't you try to do something? about the scarcity of cars if scarcity of cars is driving all of our huge macroeconomic variables. I mean, I'm not 100% sure what that would be, but, but like it must be something, right? Like as I understand it, One reason that new car production is not surging in response to the high price of used cars is that there are only so many uh, computer chips available, but that the chips themselves are, like, not particularly high-end or scarce, right? And so, you know, you could try to say, look, it's, like, more important that we get cars than that we have new Nintendo Switches and we need to, you know, divert chips into the critical sectors. But it's, you know, it's like America's not – America's not ready for that conversation.
4: <laughs> this is as good a place as any to, to end it.
3: <laughs> so there we go. Before the Office of Price Controls comes after your Nintendo Switch, thanks you, Dylan, uh, for coming. Thanks, as always, to our listeners. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Eric Janakis. The Weeds will be back on Friday, and The Time Machine will continue next week.